Well, good evening, Encounter Church. It's nice to see you all tonight. This is a figure of speech, of course, because of the lights. You can't see anything. But, you know, it is nice to uh, be aware of the presence of other humans here. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, it's uh, great to have you here. And I hope to be able to catch up with you after the service. Uh, and, and this is, I'm not sure if you know, a very special service for us at Encounter Church because we're a pack-up-and-set-down-and-pack-down church every week. We don't have to pack down for like six weeks. That's, that's a, the first miracle, okay? That's the first miracle of the night. How good is that? I just want to start by, uh, by quoting a song excerpt. It goes like this. Midnight, Christians, is the solemn hour when God as man descended unto us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his father. The entire world thrills with hope on this night that gives it a saviour. People, kneel down, await your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas, here is the Redeemer. Does any, anybody know where that's from? Just out of curiosity. It's, it's the original translation of O Holy Night. So the original, it was originally written in French, and the literal translation comes out like this, or the original literal translation, and then it was transliterated later. So this is the first verse, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining, Midnight Christians is the solemn hour. It's beautiful. Christmas, we are up to Christmas. We've got a brief little micro-series for Christmas, three messages this Sunday, next Sunday, Tuesday. I want to encourage everybody. I, w- I, w- I would love you to do two things, and I know my wife touched on this earlier. But first of all, get to a Christmas service and bring a friend. She's right. There's no other time in the entire year that is as easy to bring somebody to as Christmas. And Christmas is a message. It's, it's a message that everybody needs. But also, I would encourage you to, to try and set something in place this Christmas, and if not, set it up for next year. The spiritual discipline, I'm going to be talking more and more about spiritual disciplines the longer we go as a church here. The spiritual discipline of taking Christmas morning for Jesus, taking Christmas morning for Jesus. There is so much good stuff happening at at Christmas, right? Like presents are great. Far be it from me not to say presents are great. You know how you ever read those five love languages books and one of them is receiving gifts and everyone pretends like it's not their love language? I love getting presents. Love it. It's amazing. Just drop that out there for everybody for Christmas. But, but just like all the good stuff about Christmas, that's great. I love presents. I love Christmas trees. I love eating a lot of food. We eat Indian for lunch every Christmas. It's the greatest tradition. I strongly encourage you to do it. And I love all this stuff. But we want to do something, and that's what, we just want to put Jesus at the center of it. And I just encourage you. I know a lot of you will have plans booked in for this Christmas. That's why I'm saying if you can get here Christmas morning, do it. If you can't, Think about it in advance for next year. And I mean that seriously. Think about how you can say, okay, family, yep, when you're asking us over for Christmas breakfast, can we make it brunch? When you're asking us to start at 10, can we make it 11? I know it sounds like a little thing, but it is a moment, a sacred moment in time that we can stop and pause and reflect on Jesus. Is that good? Does that make sense? All right. So Christmas is about the beginning of the end. It's about the beginning of the end. It's about the story of salvation, the story of the hope for humanity. And this Christmas, we have three messages for you, like I said, about breaking and entering. I'll get into that in a second. About surprising beauty and about the joy before us. So I'm very excited about that. But all three of them center on humanity's need for salvation. 
And I'm going to touch on what that means later on. So my prayer tonight is that you will hear God's heart for you. If this is your first time in church or your thousandth time in church, it doesn't matter. God has a message for you. He is wanting to speak to you. And if you open your heart and receive, I believe you will be able to hear his voice. Let me pray and uh, then we'll get into it. Loving God, I thank you so much for the way you come and meet us. That, Lord, we, we sing songs about how we hunger for your presence. And you challenge us to step into that by doing it, by, by doing the little things like raising our hands. Really, the little things like even just being here. Being here at this moment in time, in this building for the purpose of worshipping you. God, we want nothing more than an encounter with Jesus. We want the Holy Spirit to show up in power. We want that still, small voice in our ear to remind us we are loved powerfully, insurmountably by the God of the universe. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me talk about something we can all enjoy and relate to. Root canals. How good are root canals? They're fantastic. They're like regular canals, except they're awful. So a root canal, for those of you who don't know it, is, is, a, is a dentistry term. Like it's something that basically happens to your tooth when you don't want a tooth anymore or when your tooth is just so buggered that they're, they're at, dentists are at their wit's end of what to do with your tooth. So I've had a root canal. I've had one. It's incredibly painful, really, really painful. I just assumed it was a cavity for a while. And so eventually I went to the dentist and I'm like, look, I've got a bad tooth. I think it's a cavity. Can you fill it up? I, look, I eat a lot of sugary stuff. I'm not going to deny it. So I just assumed the sugar had destroyed my teeth again and I would get a cavity and then I would eat more sugar and, you know, the cycle keeps going. Seems like a good – it's worked for me so far, right? And it hasn't worked for me so far. And so I went to the dentist and the dentist said, no, 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 you don't have a cavity. You've got a root canal. I said, okay, well, that sounds a lot worse. I mean, you gave it two words instead of one. That's always a bad sign. So tell me, tell me what I need to do. And the dentist said, well, basically, you come here and we anesthetize you and we take out some stuff and we charge you a lot of money. And I said, well, I'm a pastor. I don't have any monies. So you're going you're gonna to have to work me out something. And the dentist just sort of shrugs and is like, sorry, bro. And he said, have you tried the Adelaide Dental Hospital? I'm like, no. What's that? Anyone heard of this at the Adelaide Dental Hospital? Right. A few of you have. It's, it's public, and the reason it's public, the reason it's cheap, is because students do the dental work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Students are doing the dental work. So you go there, but you take your life in your own hands. It's cheap, but you take your life in your own hands. So, so there's teachers there, of course. There's instructors, and they're there, and they're coaching. But you go, <laughs> you go to the Adelaide Dental Hospital, and the students are saying things like, is this where the anaesthetic goes? And you're like, oh, dear Lord, Lord Jesus <laughs> I've always been a praying man, but really right now I'm really being a praying man. Could you just come through for me? Is, is that where the understand? What's that? Is that meant to? Um, I don't know. Do I use that? Like, oh, whew, okay, okay. Ultimately, though, it's all right. They did the root canal. They patched me up. They sent me home. It's painful, but it worked. It worked. What they did, though, is they, they break into your tooth. And you would think that was a bad thing. But they break into your tooth. They, they enter it with dental tools. And they ultimately make it better, right? It's a breaking and entering process. Breaking and entering is something that we traditionally think of as negative, you know, because it's a crime. It's okay to associate it with negativity if it's a crime. So it's okay to associate murder with negativity. Just so you know, there are some words it's okay to associate with negativity in this day and age. Because it breaks the rules, though, that's the thing. Crimes are effectively something we set up rules and the rules have been broken. 
yeah, the rules that we as a society have sort of implicitly agreed to abide by, and then the rules have been broken, and so you get put in jail or whatever. So breaking and entering, you know, it is a crime, it breaks the rules, but sometimes the rules need to be broken. I'm not going to say the rules are there to be broken, that's just something you'd say in like a lethal weapon movie or something, but they're there to protect us, not to punish us. Rules are there to protect us, not to be feared. They're rules, not rulers. They shouldn't be ruling over us. Okay, this is why Jesus, uh, once in the Gospels, you see him going through this uh, cornfield on the Sabbath. And he's plucking heads of grain off, uh, wheat field rather than a cornfield, plucking heads of grain off and eating it because he's hungry. Now, technically, that's work. You're not allowed to do it. The religious leaders got all uptight. And Jesus said, listen, the Sabbath was for us, not us for the Sabbath. Humanity are the ones that are meant to get the benefit out of this. And it's the same thing with rules. Humanity is meant to get the benefit out of it. Let me give you a break-in entering example. A good friend of mine once broke into a car. Um, he broke into a car and he did it with the help of someone he hadn't met before whose name was Guy Sebastian. So Guy Sebastian and my friend broke into a car together. Yes, that Guy Sebastian. There's not another one floating around. They broke into a car together. Sounds terrible, except, of course, it's not terrible at all. What's the reason they break into the car? They're breaking into a friend's car, a third person, because she'd left her keys in there. Yes, it's breaking and entering. Yes, it's rule breaking, but it's breaking a rule for a higher purpose. It's breaking a rule to rescue, to get the keys out and rescue my friend out of a tricky situation. This makes sense so far? So think of fireys, right? We all love fireys. Got great jobs. They work hard and, and, they, and then they get four days off in a row and it's amazing. They've they got a great life. Um, but they work hard to get there. Now, fire is breaking into all the time, but usually it's for a good reason. Like, I'm sure there have been dodgy fire somewhere along the line. But generally, if a fiery breaks into your house, that's a sign that you need to get out of your house because it's on fire, right? So they break a rule, but they're doing it for a higher purpose. They're doing it to rescue us. But we don't want to be rescued. None of us like rescuing because it implies we're weak. If we need rescuing, that means we don't have it all together. If we need rescuing, that means we're not in control of our life. It means that the suburban middle-class life we presented for ourselves doesn't work. There's a hole in it somewhere. We don't like the idea of being rescued. We don't mind, actually, the idea of rescuing other people. We're quite happy to do that because that makes us feel really good. That boosts the ego. But being rescued ourselves? No, 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 no. Very vulnerable. We don't like this. We're an independent, individualistic culture. We don't want to be rescued. And that kind of works okay in the good times. Now, if you're, if you're a Christian here, I just want to speak to the Christians in the room for a moment. I don't know if you've ever got to that point in your life where you've been looking around at, at your neighbors around you or your friends who, are, who are, don't believe in Jesus and you just ask yourself, like, why does everything seem to be working out okay for them? Like, why does life seem to be going so well for the atheists down the road? And I'm here, and Jesus, I'm trying to believe in you. I turn up to church at least once a month, and, and you know, I occasionally give money to the poor on a good day. Like, what's going on for me? Where is it happening? And this is, this is the thing, right? We play this comparison game where we're saying, God, my life is good until someone's life is better. And we assume that a lot of us in our heart of hearts, like, God, why are you making it harder for the atheists down the road? That is garbage. God doesn't work this way. God has a common grace, a common love available to all, whether we believe in him or not. That's kind of an absurd proposition. But God reaches out to us in love when? Before we know him. Before we know him. That's why sometimes it feels like the atheist down the road has it better off than you, because maybe they do. 
Or maybe they're just a more grateful person, a more generous person. Anyway, that's beside the point. The thing is, generally speaking, in our day-to-day lives, the small things we can deal with, if a problem crops up and it's little, it's manageable, we can deal with it. It's like, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I'm in charge. I've got it under control. Until suddenly we don't. As an atheist family once remarked, there's no atheist on an aircraft in a bad storm. It's tongue-in-cheek, right? But the, the point's pretty valid. As soon as something goes wrong, that's when we're like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm willing to put my hand up for salvation now. Maybe I'm willing to look for some rescue. And this is the story of Israel as well. This is the story of Israel. So a little bit of background for today's teaching passage that I'll get to in a second. Israel's entire history as a nation is one where they would look to God when times are hard and then they would wander off and do their own thing as soon as things started getting good again. So they constantly had this vision of a promised land. This is where we're going to go. This is where the good stuff is going to happen. And God's like, yeah, I've set a place out for you. I want you to go there. It's going to overflow with goodness. What the Israelites never seem to catch is that the reason it overflows with goodness is because God is with them, not because of the stuff in the promised land. It was God of the promise that went with them that made it so good, not all the stuff that they got to get. It's like, yeah, milk and honey and figs, all the good stuff. And God's like, that's great. That's a byproduct. It's not the real thing. I'm the real thing. So the Israelites would do this again and again. When they see the felt need for a savior, they look to God. When they don't, they don't. And so you get false gods and idols and self-control. So by the time we get to the book of Isaiah, which is in around 700 BC, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two. And there's a mighty empire, the Assyrians, who are threatening them. And repeatedly now, the Israelites have had to repel back these advances where they keep getting their people taken away into captivity. The Babylonian captivity happens not far off of this time and Daniel and his friends get taken away. That that might be a story you've heard of. So in Isaiah, we're talking about 700 BC. This is where this, this happens. And so now, because of the Assyrians, what's happening in this cycle? Distress, cry out for a saviour. That's where they're at. They're crying out for a saviour. And Isaiah is a prophet. And so the prophets, their basic job was to hear what God says and speak it out. Like This is what's happening. This is what's coming. A lot of the time, stuff that people didn't want to hear. I don't know if anyone said that in your life. Nowadays, it is very hard to tell someone they don't want to hear. Really, the only way to do it is to get ordained and get a microphone. Like, that's the only way. But apart from that, like, have you, have you noticed how hard it is to tell a friend something they don't want to hear? And immediately that, like, your friendship is over. It's like, no, 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 it's because of our friendship I'm telling you this. <laughs> that's the whole point. And that's why, that's why sometimes God is trying to give these prophets a vision of the future to give to their people, to go, I know you don't want to hear this, but you've got to get With the times, you've got to understand how far away you are from worshipping me. But in this case, they're crying out for a saviour. And so they've had the doom and gloom, and Isaiah gets a vision of positive future, which is always nice. So this is where we get to in verse 1. This is what Isaiah says. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are two of the tribes of Israel. So the tribes have their own land. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, I just want to pause there for a second. That's a really interesting phrase to use, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Because yes, they had a sea called the Sea of Galilee. Yes, that was kind of what the region was called. 
but they knew it by those tribal lands. It's a very unusual prophetic thing to go in the land of Galilee because they didn't call it the land of Galilee. They called it Naphtali. They called it Zebulun. Something is happening in Isaiah that God is putting in him about the future. And Galilee becomes very important in the Christmas story. Anyway, on to verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Everybody say light. Light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Let me pause and Google translate that one for you. Uh, as in the day of Midian's defeat is referring to a time in Judges chapter 6 and 7 where Gideon, another fairly famous Bible character, if you've, if you've been around Sunday school and Sunday kids and that kind of vibe, where Gideon rises up and, and helps Israel overthrow their oppressors who were called the Midianites. Now you're dealing with the same problem but with the Assyrians. So the Israelites are oppressed again but by different people. The rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I love this passage. Such a famous Christian passage. Such a famous Christmassy passage. It's one that gets pulled out when we get tired of using Luke and Matthew, you know, the standard sort of gospel Christmas stories. We're like, oh, let's, let's go back into the old, old times, back in the Old Testament. Where's the prophecies? Let's go into this. And this one's a good one. This is such a good one. You may have recognized parts of it. Now, I just want to explore four things tonight about this passage, and, and then we'll finish up. Four things, four key questions going on here that we need to explore, and I want to do it with a, with a, with a fairly sound scientific method, okay? We're going to unpack this in this way. The first question is this. What is the problem that needs solving? A prophet has come in. He's giving a prophecy of a great future, which means that there's some kind of problem. Well, this is in the prophecy. This is what Isaiah says. He says, basically, you're in darkness right now and you need it turned to light. Your nation is broken and you need it to be growing and enlarged because God is expansive. Last week I preached on Vision Sunday, Baptism Sunday. It was an unbelievable time. And I just shared that I think God's word for our church next year is more. God is an expansive God. He is growing. He wants more for your life. Mostly, he wants more of his spirit in you. But he is a God of expansion. So when Isaiah says a nation enlarged, that's what he means. He means God is a God of expansion. And right now, your nation is broken and crippled and small. Isaiah says that your joy needs to increase because right now you don't have much of it. I don't know if anyone feels like that coming into Christmas. Oppression needs to be broken. 
oppression needs to be broken. That's what he's talking about with the Midianites. He said, this is like in the day of the Midianites where, yeah, Gideon rose up and overthrew those Midianites, but right now you're under oppression again. It's like you've got a yoke on you, and a yoke is like a really old kind of harness that they would put on animals, and these two animals would walk together, and they would pull a, basically a tractor, you know, a furrow behind them, a plow, that's the word, plow, tractor, furrow. I'm so sorry for everyone who has lived in the country or knows what to do with their hands. I clearly don't. <laughs> pulling a plough behind them, right? These two oxen, they've got a yoke on them, so they walk in tandem and they pull a nice, neat groove. But the thing is, like that sounds great, and it is for a farmer, not so great for the oxen. The oxen have this big, heavy wooden thing on them that they're trying to drag behind them. So, and God is saying, through Isaiah, this needs breaking This is a yoke of oppression on you. It's it's like you're physically bowed down. In fact, going back to that story with Gideon, when we first meet Gideon, he's basically like in viticulture. He's into his vino. He's making wine. He's crushing. He's he's actually not into wine. He's into wheat. He's crushing his wheat, though, in a wine press, you know, like the old school French stomping on the grapes. And he's like quietly hunched over, stomping on wheat in his wine press, threshing it that way, which is a terrible way to thresh wheat because he's afraid that the Midianites are going to come and find him and steal his wheat and then they're going to be hungry again. This is the kind of burden that the Israelites have. And then the final thing we hear is that war needs destroying. War needs destroying. And I love that. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now, why is this the problem that needs solving? Okay, some of it's obvious. If you're in a place of darkness, whether that's mental health, whether that's a situation out of your control, whatever that is, you need light. If you've ever been in that place, you know how desperately you need light. It's hope, right? That's what light is in this case. Hope is the light. A nation growing and enlarged, joy increased. These are fruits. These are things we get when the world is all as it should be. We see oppression broken and war destroyed. And we hear really clearly that these are things that are not of God. He wants them to be broken in our lives. So those are the problems that need solving. But then the question is, okay, how will it be solved? And this is, this is where we get that beautiful, beautiful passage. We, it will be solved by a son given. A son given. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And I love this. These are the traits that the son will have. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. The son that will be given to us will give us wise advice. I could use more of those people in my life. He will be called Mighty God. That's an unusual thing to say about a son. We'll get back to that in a second. But we know there'll be power involved. He'll be called Everlasting Father. Okay, that's confusing again because you just said he was a son. The son is given to us and he's going to be called father. This is very confusing already. But it's an everlasting father. It's eternal. This is something that is beyond what we can touch and feel and understand right now in our lives. And he will be called prince of peace. Prince of peace. All this stuff about the war needing to be broken, the sense of oppression needing to end, of the the garments of the soldiers being thrown into a fire is because peace will reign when the sun comes. So that's how it will be solved, loosely. So what will the result look like? Because that's what we really want to know. Like, yep, it's great to know what the problem is. It's great to know how it will be solved, but that's all abstract. Let's Tell me about what it's actually going to look like. Tell me about what it's actually going to look like. 
Well, this is what this is what God says through Isaiah. In verse 7, he talks about that there will be a perfect government. Now already I'm skeptical. <laughs> as soon as we talk about a perfect government, I'm skeptical. Because I don't know about anyone else here, but I have politics fatigue. Like I, I think over the last 12 months, I'm like, any time I hear anything about politics, I'm like, just change the channel. I don't care if it's on the internet or in newspapers, just still change the channel, please. I just can, I only have so much room, so much energy for politics in my life. It feels like it's been a year or so of some of the most demotivating politics I can remember globally. But what God is saying here is that when this sun comes, the government will be on his shoulders. That is, all of the weight, all of the responsibility, all of the ruling is on his shoulders and he'll deal with it exactly as it should be dealt with. A perfect government with somebody who freely takes responsibility. I would like a leader like that, please. I would like a leader like that. I'm struggling to visualize it, but I would love to see it. That's not a shot at our current leadership structure, honestly. It's just politics, politics. We hear about an eternal reign that this leader, this ruler, this son who is so good will not only be for now, but will be for forever, forever. And we hear about the final fruit that there is a land of justice and righteousness together in this, a land of justice and righteousness. Imagine what that could look like. That's the hope presented by Isaiah. Now, you're all going to be really surprised to hear this, okay? I've got a, I've got a big twist for you here. Jesus is the person we're talking about. <laughs> I know. Don't you love it when the, you know, it's like the end of the sixth sense? You did not see that coming. We're in church and the preacher said Jesus is the answer. How clever. Jesus is the answer to this. It's not a big surprise to hear. But in Isaiah chapter 9, what we're hearing is one of at least 61 prophecies from at least 300 different places in Scripture that Jesus fulfilled in his birth and life and death and resurrection. That is, every promise of hope for the future of God's people, because that's what this is. It's about the promise of hope for Israel and for all of God's people. Every promise of hope for the future of God's people is found in Jesus. Every one of the prophecies, every one of the words for the future, everything about hope, everything about life, everything about your future and mine is bound up and completed in the work of Jesus Christ. Whether we realize it or not, we all had a need for a saviour. And one of our greatest fights throughout history, you and me, and you know it because it happens in your heart on a bad day, hopefully not on a good day, is that rebellion against God. To tell God in essence, Dad, I don't need you anymore. I'm 15 now. I can do what I want. You know, this is the human condition that we're trying to rebel against the loving Father who has created us and longs for us to live in a way that is fulfilling and life-giving and hope-filled. We tell God that we have it all in hand and that God should, in essence, butt out of it. And that works until we're in an aircraft in a storm and suddenly we're not atheists anymore. So God politely but firmly refused to butt out. He refused to leave our world alone. God broke into the world. God entered our world, our broken world, as a child, as a baby. Now, the final question, the most important one is, what's, what's the why behind all this? What's the point? Uh, why, why would this even happen? So far, we've just done some you know, light scientific method. 
looking at the problem, the solution, and the outcome, that's great. This is all very year eight science so far. You can hand it up, you get a solid B plus for that. That's great. But we haven't asked ourselves why. And, and friends, this is the key question behind every one of your conversations that has to do with your spirit, with your faith, with your eternity, is why. Because everybody, and this might be you here tonight, I don't know everybody here, everybody is asking the question, if this is real, why is it real? First, they're asking, show me that it's real. And second, they're asking, why? Why? There's got to be a why behind everything that's real. Why? Why would God even bother to help humanity get toward this? What have we possibly done to deserve this kind of grace, this kind of mercy, this kind of kindness? What have we possibly done to deserve it? But the thing we forget when we examine a why like this is it's not about what we deserve. It's about what God desires. Not about what we deserve, about what God desires. And what God desires is love. Love for you. Love for each and every one of you. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with God. Right now, God is standing there with arms wide open saying, I am waiting for you. I'm waiting for I love you. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've been through. I love you right now exactly as you are. And I'm longing. I'm longing for you to run back home. I'm longing for you to run back home. It's not about what we deserve. It's about what he desires. And God has a passion to accomplish salvation. A passion to accomplish salvation. That's the final verse of this passage. The zeal of the Lord Almighty. Zeal is just an old school word for passion. This pure burning passion. This is what God has for you. And thankfully for me. The driving force, the insurmountable love of God that accomplishes your salvation and my salvation, that's Christmas. That's Christmas. Christmas is the beginning of God's end game. It's the result of his passion to accomplish salvation for all humanity. Can I get Lisa up? Have some piano? How good is this? This might be the original piano. I'm not sure. It's amazing. It produces a beautiful sound. God's very aware of, of what you and I try and do with our lives. Right? Like he's one of the things it talks about earlier in this passage is that in, in darkness a light has dawned. Right? The people walk in darkness, this is verse 2, have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Now, a lot of the time, we try and treat our life as a deep darkness. Like if I just segment part of it over here, maybe I can keep that part separate from God and, and God won't see it and I can, I can just kind of hide it. Like we know it's ludicrous, but we do it anyway because we are kind of ludicrous people sometimes. And God's saying, no, 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 I see what you do in the dark and I will bring it to light, but I'm not doing it to hurt you, right? Like sometimes when these things come out, it's shameful or embarrassing. God says, I'm not doing it to hurt you or embarrass you. I'm doing it because when you bring it into the light, there's no shame around this anymore. The thing that you're holding on to, if you bring it into the light and you bring it before God and you're, and you're honest about it and say, God, is this something you want me to be doing with my life? And he tells you no, it's up to you then. You've got the courage to drop it or not. But sometimes he actually tells us yes. 
Sometimes we bring passions of ours that we've been hiding because we're afraid we're not good enough or we're afraid that people will tell us we're ridiculous or we don't have the skills. And actually what we need to do is bring them into the light and say, God, if, if this is from you, I, I just present it to you now. You do what you want with me, with my life, with my gifts and passions. Sometimes I think in church we can present this idea like God wants to save our souls. SOS, right? Very old school. Save our souls. God does want to save your soul, but actually he wants to save and redeem everything in you. Everything. Everything. There's no part of your life that God doesn't want. He wants it all. He's greedy in his love that way. God's love is unstoppable, insurmountable, extraordinary. And what He desires more than anything is for us to submit to Him. And again, like words like rescue and submit, we are not good with this in the 21st century. Don't rescue me. I'm an independent woman or man. I'm not submitting to you. You can't make me. Who are you anyway? And guess what? This is not a 2018 thing. This is exactly what the Israelites did throughout their history rebelled again and again. Life's not so bad. I've got control over most of this until suddenly we don't. And those are the only times when we allow ourselves to recognise maybe we need some rescue. And what God is saying is, you know, I can rescue you right now. I can rescue you from the depths of your despair, but I can actually rescue you from that, that, that slow burn into obscurity that you're fearing. I can rescue you from that comparison game you've been playing. I can rescue you from this relentless pursuit of money you've been striving after as if that's going to secure you. I can rescue you from this need to dominate over somebody else. I can rescue you from the sense that I'm only going to find my satisfaction in being loved by someone else, in sleeping with somebody. I can rescue you from all of that. In fact, God says... I can rescue you, my beautiful middle-class Christians who are living lives of quiet desperation. I can rescue you and redeem that life and turn it into something full if only you'll let me. It's that moment when if you've ever gone skydiving or bungee jumping or any extreme sport, I haven't done those two. I've been paragliding though and you sort of, yeah, it's not as extreme as the other two, I'm aware. <laughs> but there's a, there's a moment where the boat starts going and you're sitting in the water and it gets up to speed and the tension hits and the wind flies into the parachute and just boom, you're up. And that split second still terrifies you. In that, that split second, you're like, what if the ropes just break? <laughs> and that is what it's like when you step out in full faith into God's salvation and you say, God, you're not just saving my soul. I won't just come here on a Sunday and let you do some work on my soul now and again and then go off on a Monday and do anything else. Actually, God, I want to spend my entire life working out what it means to have my life redeemed and living for you. I don't want just enough love to get me through Sunday. I want a love that is going to overflow through my Monday through Friday to my Saturday to the next Sunday in a way that I've actually got too much of it and it's going to be flowing out of me. I'm going to be helping others. I'm going to be becoming a rescuer. You didn't just rescue me so I could feel good about being rescued. You've rescued me to be a rescuer for, the, for others because the salvation you give me is not to hold on to, but to give away. That's the message of Jesus. When Jesus comes to earth, it's not just as a baby. He grows up. He performs miracles. He performs wonders. And He dies on the cross. 
And then wonder of wonders, He is resurrected and He speaks with His disciples. He stands with His followers, His best mates, and they are freaked out. Like one of them's like, can I, can I touch your wound? And like, That's a weird thing to say, man. It's Thomas, all right? I'm just going to name drop him. I'm sorry. And he says, yeah, touch it. I want you to know I'm real. So he does. He puts his hand in the wound in Jesus' side. And so they, he stands with them and then he says, I am sending you out to be the rescuers. You've got to know that I've rescued you once and for all. You've got to know that your hope is found in me once and for all. But I'm sending you out to be rescuers. So encounter my question tonight for you, in terms of breaking and entering, if the Holy Spirit of God, the presence of God is waiting for you here at Christmas, waiting to enter into you, but you needs to break some things in your life in order to get in, what is that? What is it that you need to lay down before God this Christmas so that God can have ownership over your whole life? I just, I just want to say one last thing, and, and then I want to come to a close. And that is, I get stressed out about how many Christians I hear talking about wanting to be good. Like they, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I just really want to live a good life. You know, that's great, but that's ethics, Right? Like, frankly, that's insulting to people that don't believe in Jesus. I know it's a lot of atheists that are nicer people than me, that's for sure. It's got, it does have something to do with the God you follow, but it's not all to do with that. You can be a nice person. It's not about that. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. That's the Spirit of God at work in you. It's not about taking you from being a bad person and turning you into a good person because chances are you've got some good qualities and you've got some bad qualities. God says, give me all of those, all of the good qualities, all of the bad qualities and watch what I can do with all of them together. I love you. I don't want your bad stuff. I don't, I don't just want to be the God you reach out to in the hard times. And I don't just want your good stuff or you pretend like you don't have any hard times. I want it all together. I want the real, authentic you. And at Christmas, where you're about to go to that family dinner where the authentic you is going to come out, whether you like it or not, when that aunt asks that one weird question that you're not comfortable with, that's probably an uncle, let's be honest. So why not work it out with God today? So let me ask you a few questions. We've got these names of Jesus given to us. Wonderful counsellor. Where do you need the wonderful counsel of God right now in terms of the choices you're making? Either personal life choices, relationship choices, maybe they're job choices, maybe they're things you're looking ahead to 2019 and you need the wise counsel of God. Where do you need God's wise counsel right now? to lead you to paths of right living and wisdom and justice and true life. Mighty God, where do you need God's might and strength to break through situations that you just don't know what to do with? Where do you need the power of God to break through a situation that's threatening to break you? How are you going in trusting God as your eternal Father? Maybe that's why Christmas isn't a great time for you. Maybe there's family conflict. But how are you going and trusting God as your perfect heavenly Father? 
How are you going with that? And in what parts of your life do you need Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to bring his incredible, impossible to comprehend peace into your life? My final point is this. When the dentist did complete the root canal on me, which was delightful, they showed me what they took out, right? Because they actually take a nerve out. It's a dead nerve. It is gross as. It's this little black thing, like a, like a tiny root, like a tiny plant root. And it's black and it stinks like all the old food you've never got out of your teeth. It is, it is rough. It is rough. But they take it out. And then after that, they anesthetize you and they patch it up and they fix it up. And after that, my tooth is fine. They've taken the dead thing out of me. And what's new is actually fine. Now that's good, but God's better. God's always better. There's always more with God. God doesn't just take the dead thing out of you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says He puts something new in you. It says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, something new. That's what God is longing to do in your life. Take the dead and make it alive. Take the old and make it new. So I'm going to pray and we're just going to have a really low-key time of prayer.